Welcome to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. I am the curator, Garrett Chaffin Kirai. Today we have a conversation with a friend, Ed Rosa. That's me. Hi. My filmmaking partner and I have a YouTube channel, Toothless Richard Productions, where you can see a number of our short films. This is a movie that is produced by men, largely, under the direction of Stanley Kramer with the social consciousness, who said, Boys, demonstrate vulnerability, demonstrate awkwardness, and touch each other a lot in your underpants. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that will be whole sequences of the movie when you're not being humiliated in your underpants. Right. <laughs> Are you ready? Yeah. Action. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. what's my motivation? Bless the Beast and Children is uh, from 1971. It's based on a novel of the same name. It's about a group of misfit, uh, rich young boys at Box Canyon Boys Camp who uh, don't fit in with uh, all of the other boys in the camp. And for various reasons, they decide that they need to go try to rescue a herd of captive buffalo, like the proverb, you know, shooting fish in a barrel. It's like shooting buffalo in a pen. <laughs> Back in the 90s, I was pretty young. At the time, I had become recently a fan of the television series Lost in Space. The, one of the kids in particular, the actor Bill Mooney, I'd seen him in a bunch of stuff that I, and I watched, so I recognized him. And uh, I was at a friend's house, and this thing just happened to be on TV. Like, we were flipping. I was like, hey, that's Bill Mooney. So we stopped to watch it. The thing was, it raised enough questions and made its emotional points effectively enough that it stuck with me. Viewing it repeatedly over the years, every so often, I find that it remains interesting and it remains emotionally poignant. When I was a kid, there was this older boy. Tad was this kid I much admired, this immediate neighbor. I think he might have been eight or nine years older than me, and I was sort of a puppy dog. I'd follow him around, and whatever he did I thought was cool. Yeah. Whatever he listened to I thought was neat. And I had one of those guys. One afternoon, <laughs> I wandered over to Tad's house to hang out. And he had this uh, after-school movie festival going. This is in San Diego County. And the guy who was hosting it was the local weatherman for the NBC affiliate, Bob Dale. So there would be these commercial breaks, and Bob Dale would introduce the piece or comment on it as sort of a segue into and out of soap commercials and whatever else was going on in the afternoon. So it was one of those events, Bob Dale's showcase of a movie. And its name never stuck to me. I didn't quite get it. But what I saw was just the concluding sequence, which is, as you described, these six boys who don't quite fit in decide to help these buffalo escape and when they do they have a hard time of it because these domesticated buffalo don't want to flee the hunters who are going yeah. to exterminate them the leader of the group who's a particularly emotionally upset young man takes a truck to stampede them the adult hunters show up and start to shoot him at, or shoot the truck right and to shoot the buffalo they just try to shoot <laughs> and stop his progress and they kill him in the process yes. of causing the stampede he flops out of the truck's cockpit and the movie concludes with the five surviving boys looking at these adult hunters silently staring at the fact they've just exterminated this boy and the buffalo have scattered that's the end kids mm -hmm. 
And I'm following around this kid, Tad, thinking, what in the hell did I just watch? <laughs> I'm so traumatized. Why was this boy shot? And then, meaningfully, he shot in the head. When you suggested we watch this together, I thought, well, that sounds okay, because I, I think maybe it'd be good to see the whole movie. Right. <laughs> yeah, get some context for the horrific scene you, you had to endure. So my take on watching this movie, then, as a as a proper-seeming adult called me today, is that it's really badly performed. Sure. And really interestingly organized, sort of out of time, because the backbone of the piece is the boys' agreement to escape in the night by horseback from this camp where they're all isolated from their families who don't want anything to do with them either, and then basically hitchhike or steal cars across country until they find these buffalo. And all of that is intercut with these flashbacks and or dream sequences that the boys individually have, so we get a sense of psychological depth on why they are considered mm -hmm. cast off outliers that don't we we get some of that backstory and some of those little excerpts were a little bit on the nose sure but then the stuff that's really invigorating is that we keep having those punctuated by the buffalo shoot we watch these giant animals get shot and, and fall down and yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah hitting the ground and gasping for their last breath yeah and there are these interesting editorial moves with wipes that are vertical, not horizontal, that shake up this really sort of banal story of these boys going on walkabout. And then finally we get this bloody conclusion that is kind of poignant because at that moment we do see that there's this sense. The boys are staring down these adults and they're not saying what's on our mind, which is you killed this boy because the boy is running these stampeding buffalo away, but with... Steady morning of rustling work, you'll bring the buffalo back and you're going to yeah. shoot them all. Yeah. So why did you kill the boy? Right. And we all know that these boys are attached to rich parents. Why don't you just soak the parents for the stolen property or inconvenience? One of the people chasing Cotton, who's this leader boy in the truck stampeding the buffalo, one of the men is designated a sheriff. Watch out for the kids! But the idea that the sanctioned violence of the state's apparatus, as defined by the sheriff, saying, it's cool, fellas, unload your weapons, is a strange message. From our distance, this is more than 50 years since the movie was released, it has these signposts of its time in which it was made, just as an example. The boys continuously steal cars. <laughs> People leave them in the, the keys. Even when they get run off from that Cadillac, right. the guy comes out and he's like, You stay away from that caddy, you hear me? And then he goes back into the restaurant, leaving the, keys, right. leaving the keys in the car, despite the fact that you just had six miscreants <laughs> just almost steal it. And then our one boy, of course, he knows how to hotwire a car, mm -hmm. which, which is, this is probably the first time I'd ever heard of that. Again, following this buddy Tad around and... But they also, nobody wears seatbelts. That's not a mandated nope. thing. There's nope. a lot of sitting in the backs of trucks and horsing around. And there's a lot of pretty vigorous looking cinematography work where it appears that the boys are actually in charge of the vehicle. Yeah. I was, there really was a couple driving. scenes I was like, I was like waiting for a cut. Yeah. To see like, is that, is that Bill Mooney actually driving this thing? And like, sure enough, the one scene where they boost the exterminator jeep which right. is probably one of the coolest vehicles in cinema history <laughs> and and he comes tearing ass like across the street to come get him like that was him yeah that was not a stunt driver that was him driving the truck there's a lot of 
there's there are great many sequences of these boys in their underpants. Yeah. And all the other campers at this this camp for boys. Yeah. And as I think I remember, there were six different cabins of five or six boys each. So in certain sequences, there are upwards of three dozen boys and a couple of chicken hawk men who are mm-hmm. in charge of, of things as camp counselors. Each cabin seems to have an adult male in charge of that group of campers. Right. And there's this open warfare that's encouraged by the adults with contest of the will, whether that's a, a rope pull, mm-hmm. whether that's playing baseball. The winners and losers get stacked up for priority. They get these coveted prizes and fetish objects, which interestingly, of the six cabins, four of the coveted objects are the animal heads of uh, predator animals right. from a bear on down. Right. In fifth place is a prey, prey animal. animal. It was a deer. And then our team, they are the bedwetters, and they get a chamber pot. Right. <laughs> So the ritualistic hazing of this is strange because probably that was a regular feature of a certain strata of society. Sure. When we get the flashbacks to our major six players, we see their families. They are of means. They have stuff. And their parents are kind of awful people to the one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Why they had children is its own question. But there they are, these boys in this world run amok. It's it's almost Mad Maxine. It's it's like hanging out on Fury Road. (laughs) You will ride eternal. Because this movie is released in the summer of 71, we're thinking about peak civil rights agitation, peak women's rights agitation, peak gay rights agitation, peak Vietnam War agitation. Mm. All of these things are roped into interpreting this movie. Some of the offline reviews that I picked out of IMDb and sort of went chaining my way through the web talked about this as a parable about the My Lai Massacre. And I don't quite see that so much right. because really the movie is very self-consciously aware of what it's doing. These six boys are lorded over by their camp counselor, Wheaties. He gives this lengthy speech. You know what a ding is? That's something that don't fit anywhere, anytime, anything, anyplace. It uses up space, but it's useless. Nobody wants it or knows what to do with it. So it's got no use for living. Like those buffalo. You know why they were being destroyed? For being animal dings! So should you. So should you. Because you're the pee-poorest, loudmouth, crybaby, snot-nosed, grab-bag full of dings that this camp's ever seen. He wants a cabin of masculine boys. Right. Like the the leaders of the other cabins. And each of these boys are differentiated one to the other because they seem to lean in hard to their strange behaviors. They don't seem to be trying to mask any of it, which is... Unusual to my experience of being an awkward boy growing up. I think that's kind of one of the things I that drew me to it as well. Struggling with weight. Struggling with a sense of how I would gender express. Struggling with a sense of how my interests were not butch interests. Yeah. These kids are the kinds of kids that I would have been had my parents been wealthy and shipped me off to Arizona. Right. <laughs> exactly. But this point, none of them try to pretend that they're not these awkward kids filled with embarrassing needs and capacities and so the the kid who is the the impersonator who does play sammy shecker played by miles chapin Mm -hmm. he does all of his impersonations throughout the piece all of them are irritating all of them are are drag (laughs) the other boys don't like him and now that we're so far removed from what he's referring to many of the celebrity impersonations he's doing in the early 70s are of people who are now long dead you got to really kind of have some reach in the show business to get what he's even doing But I guess the greater point of what he represents is these boys aren't drawing the soup 
of masculinity, the soup of what adulthood can be from their immediate models. They're drawing it either from each other or from media. And this media sense of how they're constructing themselves is bad. And maybe that's one of the, the sort of meta narratives baked into the themes of this piece. We're watching a movie about young men coming of age and they don't have appropriate role models, either in, in their natal homes nor do they have appropriate models in the wider culture at large. Our six do seem to represent multiple kinds of gender, multiple kinds of sexuality, and they're interraced to a degree mm -hmm. that all of the other boys around them are not. For me growing up, it was very much like this, where everyone else seemed like they were normal, but I was not. That kind of keeps the film relevant today because these sort of issues... You know, people wanting, like, acceptance and representation, you know, and all kinds of stuff from different groups. Well, and there are these shocking scenes of the hierarchical organization of that camp. Shocking because it it's despicable behavior. Sure. All of the other boys, there, there's a raiding party that the bedwetters go on to try to steal the trophy of one of the other groups. They're caught in the middle of this, and then they're punished. They're paddled on the backside by some of the other boys using a wet paddle. And then their bedwetter chamber pot is pissed in. Mm -hmm. And then that's thrown in their faces while all of the adults applaud and egg the boys right. on. It's natural that these six boys would want to escape all of this. It comes to a head at a certain point when Wheaties takes them off to, we're going to go see some Buffalo boys. And he doesn't explain <laughs> to them trip. that he's taking them to a Buffalo shoot that he's going to participate in. Right. And the boys find themselves quite overwhelmed by what they're viewing. Get out of here. Are you kidding? The day's just begun. We don't want to see this. And then they meet another little boy at that shoot who won the lottery to go pick off these animals. And that boy explains to them... Once every year, they thin out the rotten ones. You liked killing that buffalo. Well, I didn't do too good a job shooting her, but the meat's going to be fine. So he's farming. Whereas Wheaties and many of the other adults, they're just exterminating these animals for sport. Mm -hmm. The boys, of course, don't see the symbolism of this inside of the story world, but we're well aware of it. They're being culled from the field of boys. Absolutely. By being placed in the bedwetter's cabin until finally, of course, their leader is killed. Each of them is misfit for their own particular reasons. One of the boys is a bet, literally a bedwetter, mm -hmm. and he's effeminate, and he eventually comes out towards the very end of the movie... Boy, that must have been startling in 1971. Oh, yeah. It remains startling today yeah. when young people announce non-heterosexual feelings and, and people get quite confused by it. So I have to imagine that, that packing all that stuff in was in its way quite eye-opening, which is to say this is a Stanley Kramer movie. Right. And Stanley Kramer's brand, 20 years already defined by the time he makes this movie, is very much about social commentary and being on the right side of, of history to a certain degree, trying to... Um, foment good beliefs and good kindnesses by the stories that he tells about people who are behaving well with one another. You know, he goes back to things like Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, The Defiant Ones. He's mm -hmm. on the side of trying to pick the story that allows him to explore issues. Right. And there's a way it's preachy, and there's a way that it's a little bit too overt in, in that, that quality. There's a way that all of the adults, really every one of them, is, is a cartoon. 
So these boys are completely roped off in their own little world. So as I was watching it, I was thinking about the coming-of-age movies that were signposts probably to us at, at roughly our age. Mm. And, and just The Breakfast Club slid right into Oh, the yeah. Movie. That movie also is about looking at this small group of young people isolated from the pack. But that adult in that movie is given a couple of moments where we see he's somebody in the round. He's not just this cruel, bigoted jerk. He's a guy trying to build a pension. He he's... makes $30,000 a year. Don't mess with the bull, young man. You'll get the horns. So an inconsistency with the way the movie's narrative works, but that is emotionally consistent with the way kids think. When they're trying to break out the buffalo in the final sequence of the movie, they have to break a lock. Teft is the one they rely on for all this ne'er-do-well behavior, but he sa says to them, I can't do this. Right. I've got to go do something. He, he steals a truck, brings it over, backs the truck up to the gate, and then they run a chain from the back of the truck to the gate to burst it open using the truck. Now, why they don't just run over the gate with the truck, realizing they've already stolen things, there's already property damage afoot, the point is, Cotton is really committed to this chain breaking the gate open. Yeah. And because it doesn't work successfully, he overcommits to the plan and can't see through the tunnel he's trapped in. Right. That's exactly how I remember being as a 15 or 16-year-old. Right. There are three things that really struck me hard. One was it's actual open. We're looking right. at a nightmare sequence, and it's of adults coming up to a stable where our six lead boys are behaving as if they are the buffaloes. Mm -hmm. And they're let loose only to be shot down by their parents. Right. What am I watching? I thought to myself, <laughs> this is not what that older boy Tad showed me back with Bob Dale's after school movie right. specials. <laughs> then the next thing that really got my attention that I continue to sort of enjoy is the odd choices about having color filters that transition from one time period in the piece to another, to the interspersing of flashback sequences to, again, bridge the gaps yeah. narratively as these boys move along. And then the third piece... I grew up playing the piano, and I learned Nadia's theme because I learned it as being the Young and the Restless theme right. that Nadia Comaneci right. used in the 76 Olympics. But it was Cotton's theme. It was Cotton's theme. <laughs> and it's so pretty. Yeah. It's such oh, yeah. a nice piece of music. Yeah. And no doubt everybody has heard this, at oh, least yeah. if they've grown up in America in the last 50 years. Everyone knows it. Put all that together, and, and the movie's being really, really um, savvy with finding these ancillary markets that Stanley Kramer can license to increase the movie's potential appeal to yeah. a number of audience members and still be goofy and, in some ways, inconsistent and illogical and badly done. But as soon as you sort of get irritated with that, a flashback. Oh, my God, this is how the boy was made. Oh, well, we're back with these kids who can barely reset their lines. Flashback. Oh, boy, this is how that boy was made. And, oh, my God, look at what they're enduring at camp. And it keeps flopping around between excellence <laughs> and just sort of silly amateurishness sure. in this ultimate balance that finally delivers Cotton's death.
there are no sympathetic adults in the film except, say, for maybe Karen Carpenter, <laughs> whose, you know, voice comes in in a godlike way. Bless the beasts and the children, for in this world they have no voice. They have no choice. The boys, as they move along, they are indeed becoming cowboys, right? I mean, they, they learn how to ride horses. Yeah. They learn how to steal stuff that they need to survive on the land. Yeah. They learn how to overcome the foe around them. And as they move along, their box canyon shirts, these yellow shirts with a sort of Apache-ish emblem on mm -hmm. the front saying BC on the back, they begin to uh, expand on the iconography through costume. One of the boys, Goodnow, I think he ends up having a fringe vest, a vest. yeah, and a, and head, a bandana, and, yeah. which is a signifier of Native American-ness to mm -hmm. a lot of white folks, particularly in the early 1970s. It's taken a page from Easy Rider. Get your motor running. I know one of the things that was noteworthy about Easy Rider at the time is these oddball editorial selections, the, yeah. the flashes, yeah. all that kind of stuff. In film school, all the professors would be like, oh, no, if you want to work, you need to learn to tell your story in a nonlinear fashion, something that I think in the modern era was kind of popularized by Pulp Fiction. <laughs> According to the research I did, it opens the same day as the Omega Man. Build coffins. That's all you'll need. Can I have $5? I want to go to the show. Yeah. Sure, sure, son. <laughs> go see the albino vampires and the children who are having urine splash in their faces. <laughs> yeah, it was a great time for cinema. Bless the beast and the children. And there were a couple of interesting movies during that summer of 71 that have, I think, had a, a cult following around the edges of things. And one is Walkabout by Nicholas Rowe. Absolutely, a personal these, favorite. These two young people meet this Aboriginal man when their parents kill themselves and fail to yeah. kill the children. And this Aboriginal man helps them walk about until they find their way home, and then they, they cast him out. Right. I came upon that in the same way that you came upon Bless the Beast and Children, is that it was just happened to be on TV right at the, the scene at the beginning with, like, the suicide of the father. Right. And I'm like, what the hell am I watching? Yeah. And <laughs> Should I, I be just, seeing this? And I just stuck with it, and it just, you know, I, I don't want to be hyperbolic. It's like, oh, it changed my life. But, I mean, I immediately fell in love with the movie. Yeah. And, and then there's also Sunday, Bloody Sunday, John Schlesinger's movie with, I think it's Peter Finch, who's a man deeply troubled by the fact of his latent homosexuality or at least his bisexuality. And this is after Midnight Cowboy was released. And then we're thinking about pop music, Shaft. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And then as we get into the fall, in October, we get The French Connection, Play Misty for Me, and The Last Picture Show. I tried so hard, my dear, to show that you're my every dream. Like I said, I think this is a good gateway drug for getting into bigger and better stuff. The drug dealers need to know 
that we want them out of our schools, neighborhoods, and our lives. They's just dumb animals. Ain't good for nothing alive. There's a lot of dumb people good for nothing. Nobody shoots them. Why, you see people shot every day. You watch it on the TV. This is Blockbusters and Bird Walks, a conversation between Garrett Chaffin-Kirai and... Ed Rosa. Boop-boobity-doo.